Good morning. It's a privilege for me to be here this morning. Um, as Chris said, I'm the RUF campus minister at UAB, and fall is nearly upon us. School starts on August 15th, and there's no place that is fresher or newer that I can think of than the college campus in the fall. I think for a lot of us, we get used to sort of January 1st, and this is a time of New Year's resolutions. But you really see this in remarkable ways in the fall with new roommates, some people moving to Birmingham for the first time, uh, new resolutions to keep taking notes all semester long, go to class all semester long. There is an excitement, a newness on the college campus in the fall that I just can't find anywhere else. And it's exciting for us to be there. Um, I want to say thank you to this church for the ways that you have loved us, uh, supported us financially. Um, Generously, we would not be at RUF or UAB without you. Um, and this really is a work that you have partnered with. And so when you pray for us, when you pray for us this fall, uh, you're praying for your ministry uh, at UAB. And, and I can't stress that enough. Uh, we are excited about starting our fifth year. And one of the things that I would encourage you to pray for especially is as our ministry team is finally starting to take more and more ownership in our ministry, they're starting to see, our students are starting to see more and more that ministry is not just something that I do, but something that all of God's children are called to. Would you pray that we love our campus well? And would you pray for our ministry team as they strive to love our students well uh, and to, to put others before themselves? As I'm seeing God grow these desires uh, in their hearts. Uh, this morning, we're going to be in Psalm 73, and if it's all right with you, I'm not going to read the passage on the front end. We're going to read most of it as we go through it. But let me pray for us uh, as we begin. Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope of the gospel. We thank you for the work that you've done in our lives. And we ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us and that you would show us Jesus as more lovely and more believable than we already thought. We pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, there is an age-old question. Why do bad things happen to good people? And if you've been in the church for a while, if you've been coming here for a while, then you've probably heard Chris say that, well, the Bible doesn't really have a very positive outlook on us. There are no such things as, as good people. And that might rub you the wrong way, but that leads us to maybe a, a follow-up question. Well, then why do bad things happen to me. Uh, the psalmist is asking sort of a different question this morning, and that is, why do good things happen to bad people? That's the question the psalmist is wrestling with here. Why do good things happen to bad people? Uh, the theme of the psalms, the theme of the Bible really, is that God is king of the universe. This is my father's world. Uh, this world is his. He's in control of all things. Nothing that ever happens takes God by surprise. From the biggest thing you can think of to the smallest thing that happens in our world, nothing takes God by surprise. This is because he governs, he orders all things. And yet, the wicked do seem to prosper. This is God's world. And the wicked do seem to prosper at times for a season. This is the psalmist's struggle. 
uh, dictators rise up around the world, wreak havoc from palaces. Those who seem to have no regard for human rights live in luxury. And the psalmist's complaint goes like this. God, you've promised well-being. You've promised blessing to your children. But all the wrong people seem to prosper. He's having a bit of an existential crisis. That is, he's questioning the very foundation of his life. Verse 1 shows us the foundation of his life. Uh, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Okay, so God is good to those who follow him. This is the psalmist's foundation. This is what he has built his life on, that God is good to those who follow him. This is where I've planted my feet, and yet we see further into his existential crisis in verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. My feet are on the solid ground of God, and yet I don't seem to be secure. I'm slipping. It makes me think of the old R.E.M. song, I'm losing my religion. Verse 3, why is he slipping? What is the problem? For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He's He's not envious of their arrogance. He's not envious of their actions, but he's envious of their prosperity, the ease of their life. Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever felt like you were about to slip because life was harder for you and it looked like those who were hating God, it was so much easier? Have you ever felt like you've put your hope and your trust in God, but what if he gives way like a cardboard wall? Have you ever felt like that? If you have, then you have good company in the Bible. Because this is where the psalmist is right now. He's wondering, what if God, the solid rock, isn't as solid as I think he is? That's what he's wondering. Uh, look, Think about lifestyles that you see that, that we, we glamorize in our society. You know, in Hollywood or New York and D.C., which isn't to say that there aren't beautiful things happening there, which isn't to say that God isn't at work in remarkable ways there, or anywhere for that matter. But it's not hard to think of places in our culture where we glamorize lives that are centered on the rejection of God and his Messiah. And yet we want those lives. Does centering your life around Jesus even make sense when you don't seem to need him for success? Because you don't need Jesus to get a job. And you don't need Jesus to find a spouse. And you don't need Jesus to have kids or whatever it is that you want, does it even make any sense? The psalmist looks at the world around him, and he's riddled with envy. Verse 4, For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. This is not a jab, right? He's not making fun. They're not hungry like we are. They're not hungry. They have money. They're not in trouble as others, and they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Life is easy for them, and and I want what they have. He's riddled with envy. Look at verses 9 and 11. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. 
It's quite a word picture there. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? They hate God. Their life is easy. God, this is just not fair. Why do good things happen to bad people? Jesus, didn't you say you would remember your people? Does this look like remembering us to you? We don't know exactly what the psalmist is wrestling with, but that's his question. Does my set of circumstances look like your blessing upon my life? Because everywhere I look, that looks like blessing. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that if you build your life on any other foundation but him, it's like what? It's like building a house on a foundation of sand. Wind, waves come and and level it. And the psalmist is wondering if maybe he hasn't been duped by God and he's building on a sandy foundation of God himself. In verse 13, he says, All in vain I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. All in vain I've tried to be honest in the workplace. All in vain I've tried to pursue justice in my friendships. All in vain. I've lived my life for God for no apparent reason. Have you ever thought this? I think for a lot of us, if we're honest, we'll say, yeah, we felt this. What we see from this passage is that envy is powerful. Envy is a powerful thing, and all of us know to a degree what it's like. I was envious when I saw their prosperity. Why do so many people read People magazine? Because we want Brangelina's life, right? We want their life. We want their recognition. We want their money. We want their their fame. We envy those who have no regard for God. Why is pornography so rampant? We envy the sex lives of rock stars. A friend of mine has a column in the Homewood paper. It's not a wide circulation. And um, she writes this. She wrote this two or three months ago. It was in an article called Of Pinterest and Envy. And here's how it starts. Maybe I'm a little bit late to the party, but I finally discovered Pinterest. I'd been hearing about it for a long time from nearly every woman I know, but I just didn't get it. What does it mean to pin something? Why not just pull pages out of magazines and bookmark web pages like I've been doing for years? A few weeks ago, I decided to give it a go, and I'm hooked. I found ideas for color schemes, craft projects, new recipes, and holiday decorating plans. It's made me want to pull out my glue gun, a roasting pan, and my dusty sewing machine. I've also seen it uncover something a bit less desirable in myself. Sometimes when I'm perusing those Pinterest photos, I start to wish that my life resembled the photos I see. More than that, I find myself envying the owners of those beautiful dining rooms with antique tables set with vintage china for 12. I start wishing my my bedroom had such a plush bed layered in exquisite bedding and goose-down pillows. 
I click on one of those recipes which sends me to a lovely little blog from some mother who spends all her time baking organic goodies for her family, sewing all her kids' clothes, raising heritage chickens, and saving homeless puppies. (laughs) At least it looks that way from the luscious photos peppering her blog. I start to think, what am I doing wrong? Envy is powerful. And it shapes all of our lives. And it is shaping all of our lives. You see, envy is more than just wanting what somebody else has. Uh, Envy can't rejoice at the good things that others have. In fact, it, it grieves when others have what you want. It grieves at others' success. Envy is being unhappy when others rejoice. Tim Keller says that envy is so serious because it hides itself in our lives. Um, Basically, he says envy is petty. And because it's so petty, we don't want to admit that it resides within us. Uh, Verse 21. My soul was embittered. Envy makes you bitter. It's not fair that their life looks like this when mine doesn't. Who is your heart bitter towards? Just think about this for a minute. Who in your life are you bitter towards? Who bothers you? Who gets under your skin? Maybe it's a sibling or a friend, a coworker, a spouse. Could it be that there's envy there? Could it be that you're dealing with envy with the person that bothers you? You see, envy is not like most other sins. Um, most other sins are enjoyable, aren't they? I mean, greed. You played Monopoly. Like, the point is to win, and we like to fuel that. And I want to win at Monopoly. I want to win at life. I want more. Greed feels good. Anger feels good for a season. Lust feels good. Sin often feels good, at least for a season. You know, until the Holy Spirit comes in and, ah. But envy never feels good. Envy is miserable. Envy keeps you from being thankful for what you have because you feel robbed of what should be yours. Instead of being thankful, we're bitter. Uh, Let me give you a personal example. A lot of you know this about us, and some of you don't. So, um, Melissa over here, we just checked um, a little seven-month-old. Well, this says Ann Charlotte, but it's Ann Charlotte. And uh, we checked her, and she was born seven months ago, and and she's wonderful. But she's not our firstborn. She's our only living child, but she's not our firstborn. Because last October, we had a son. Uh, I'm the third. He was the fourth. and, And he lived for six days, and he passed away, which was awful and very a dark time for us. And then, you know, we began to think, and before that, we miscarried a few times. And There's something, there's nothing wrong with wanting a child. In fact, there's everything right with wanting a child. It's it's a good, God-given desire. It's, It's biblical to want children. And yet, I began to find envy creep in my heart in this sort of dark season in my life. And and here's what began to happen. I began to become bitter towards even my friends 
who had children. That's petty, right? We have, we have lots of friends who were also struggling to get or stay pregnant. And then, you know, they'd get pregnant and they'd come to us and say, guess what? We're pregnant. We're still pregnant. And sort of monster up a smile. Good for you, right? And on some days I wasn't happy about it at all. I was bitter. I was envious. I could not rejoice with others. On top of that, it's not that hard to find people who are 15 who don't want kids and they get kids. Why do they get kids and we don't? That was the big question for our our life for a while. And, And tell me you haven't been there yourself. You know, your co-worker comes into your office and says, guess what? I got the promotion. Oh, good for you, you know? <laughs> that means I didn't. <laughs> or, or what happens when, when one of your close friends comes to you and says, our daughter got in school that your daughter wanted to get into? She didn't. We become envious and bitter. Do you know where this comes from? Do you know where this envy, this bitterness, it comes from? It comes when we look to things other than God to justify our existence. That's where it comes from. If your family justifies your existence, then those who have prettier families, those who seem to be more ordered families, will make you envious and bitter. You won't want to be around them. If your job is what justifies your existence, then you won't be able to be excited when somebody else gets a promotion. And you'll be a little excited when they fail. That's how envy works. And don't just think that envy affects your relationships with others. Of course it affects your relationship with God. And it changes the way we relate to Him. This is what being good to me looks like. Why do you bless others with what I want? Verse 22. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Envy is sucking the life and the joy out of the psalmist's life. And all of us know what this feels like to a certain degree. So what changes for the psalmist? But when I thought how to understand this, It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. The psalmist turns his attention to God. And some of you are going to think, Joe, this is a psalm. Isn't the whole thing about God? Yeah, um, but the psalmist has been looking at God through his circumstances, through his life. Me, me, me. This is how I see God. Instead of seeing, God, this is your world. You are good to me, and you love me, and seeing his circumstances through that. Do you see the difference? He's seeing God through his circumstances instead of seeing his circumstances through God. And he goes to the sanctuary, and that all changes. Because he is reading and singing and praying God's word with God's people. And that word is being worked down into his heart. And it gives him spiritual perspective. He has a moment of clarity. I'm just like the people that I envy. Except that God is for me. I know God. You see, what the the psalmist is seeing is that all the things that he wants, 
money, sex, power, relationships, all those things in and of themselves are fine. But they're not meant to give him meaning. And what he also finds is that unless he also has God, he has nothing. Unless he also has God, he has nothing. And if he has God and none of those things, he has everything. He's seeing that he was made to delight in God. And when he delights in stuff over God, he becomes envious. And he can't love his neighbor and he can't love his maker. He also finds that the things that he wants can't save him because that's what he's looking for. And tell me, some of you aren't still thinking this. Joe, you're probably right, but if I did get that promotion, things would be better. If I got it. If, if my spouse just acted the way that, that she used to or he used to, the way I wanted him to, then things would be better. We're looking to other things to justify our existence, to make us happy. And only God can do that. I mean, it's like I tell my students all the time. If you finally get that ring, do you know what's going to happen? Your best friend's going to get a bigger ring. It's not going to make you happy. Only God can deal with our envy. And this is how it happens. The psalmist says, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me into glory. I was awful to you. I was sinful to you. I was angry to you. I'm shaking my fist at you, and what do I find? That you've been holding my hand the whole time. What deals with his envy? It's the grace of God. That God would still delight to be in his presence. That even though he's angry, shaking his fist, God's holding his hand the whole time. And that melts his heart. It melts it. Truly God is good to the pure in heart. That's how he starts it. But then he describes himself later. I was, I was brutish. I was beastly. I was awful. How do we reconcile these two? This is the grace of God. God looks at our sin for what it is. And he doesn't run from us. He deals with our sin and he takes it away from us. And of, of course he does that through Jesus. Jesus, when he's hanging on the cross, and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He finds that God has let go of his hand. I mean, you realize this. Jesus never sinned. He was never envious. He was, he was born into poverty. He did not have money. And, and even to think that he was never envious when he's hanging on the cross, he did not envy the solid ground of the people standing on before him who were mocking him. Jesus was perfect, and it pleased God to crush him and abandon him so that he wouldn't abandon us. And because he abandoned Jesus, we find even when we shake our fist at God sometimes, he's, he's holding our hand. That's the grace of God, and only the grace of God can melt our hearts, and that's how God deals with, with sin in our heart. That's how he deals with envy in us, because we find that in God we have what we need. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Have you had that moment of spiritual clarity when you realize that all the stuff that I want, all the stuff that I'm chasing, all the stuff that keeps me from loving others pales in comparison to God in heaven? Whom have I in heaven 
but you. Have you had that moment when you realize, and not to say that you won't wrestle with envy still, but the grace of God is more valuable than anything else we want. And it transforms us more than anything else can. I'll close by reading verse 27. He says, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You shall put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I might tell of all your works. Could it be that our our envy-prone hearts need to be melted away by the grace of God? And could it be that as God melts our hearts of stone, could it be that as he deals with our envy and allows us to delight in him, that others might become envious of the joy that we have in God? Could it be that that's what God is at work in us, to melt our sin and our envy so that others who don't know God might be envious of the joy that we have in Him? To which we can respond, He's big enough to go around. Let's ask God to help us do that. Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word. And we pray that that you would work your word deep into our hearts. We pray that your love and mercy, that your grace would, would melt our envy. Would you show us the ways that we're envious? Would you show us the people that we're bitter towards? And then would you show us how much you love us in the person of Jesus Christ? Would you give us great joy in him? Please give us opportunities to share of that love and that joy with others. We pray this in his name. Amen.